I have tried to learn several languages and uh, mostly been um, inspired by girls that I've met from from foreign countries. <laughs> yeah, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah. uh, so um, I tried to learn um, Korean for quite a while. Okay, because I went to Korea and wow, the girls are so pretty there. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to sound too lecherous, but, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but um, it inspired you to try and learn yeah, some Korean. But, but yeah. my God, I mean, you know, I mean, people say that, you know, Koreans have a lot of, do a lot of plastic surgery or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. You know, yeah. um, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But, yeah. but, but if they do, they're doing something right. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Welcome to the show. This is Siddhant. Immigrants are quite a special breed of people. The significant number of immigrants that move to new countries every year seem to share similar traits and values, such as openness, curiosity, tolerance, and a multicultural outlook on life. Generalizing immigrants into a group of like-minded people results in the same oversimplification we get from, well, generalizing any other group of people, if you really think about it. It masks what makes every individual unique. The diversity of immigrants really makes the local population richer, and the local economy richer too, because new ideas come from everywhere and all over the world. Whether some might like or dislike certain worldviews, other people can see profit or growth from new ideas that have come from different places and different worldviews. Do you want to be challenged ideologically? Can you really withstand it? What if it forces you to change? These are some of the questions we all ask ourselves when we're faced with, well, opposing views. Our next guest, Stephen Saad, went through some similar ideological changes in his lifetime as we all have. And his time living in Thailand, the first time he moved here was almost 10 years ago, has bookended his life experience. Stephen has gone from banking to writing Thai language books. It's quite a change in itself, but it isn't the evolution I'm referring to. So whose idea was it for you to come to Thailand? Was it your idea from the very get-go or did your just boss just say, hey, go to Thailand? You mean when I first came, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that was an interesting situation. Yeah. So, I I was sent here for a one week business trip back in two thousand and one when I worked for this company, this banking software company, and it was clear to everybody that I that I fell in love with Thailand. People could tell that I was uh, trying to speak Thai. I was trying to interact with people. I was, uh, you know, keen on talking about Thailand and my and my business trip even after I'd returned back to London. So it, it was pretty obvious to people that I enjoyed the experience. So it was just a business trip. Yeah, yeah, initially, yeah. And so then I came a couple of times for holidays in 2002. And again, I popped into that office, into the Thailand office, just to say hello to people and so on, because I'd seen them for a week and so on. And I sort of dropped in on them. And again, it was obvious to the boss that uh, I was almost using an excuse because I just loved the opportunity to talk to them and try and practice my tie or whatever. And so then in 2003, when, when I was sort of in between jobs and the economy was struggling a little bit in the UK, they said, well, you know, do you want to come over to Thailand and um, start up this new product that we want to try and market to right. fund managers? 
So what was your original job in the UK? So yes. what what were you doing back then? Yeah, so I um, studied banking and finance and <laughs> I was a pretty much a straight 2-1 student most of the way through and then I moved out of my parents' house in the in the final year mm-hmm. and I went from a 2-1 to a 2-2 because I started going out more, drinking more, <laughs> I had my freedom, okay. you know, yeah. and, so, and so that had an impact and so then I uh, was convinced by my parents and everybody that I needed to do a master's because I was going to get a good job with a 2-2 degree in the UK. Okay. So what is a 2-2 and a 2-1? Yeah, so it's like a lower second, you know, so okay. you've got first, 2-1, upper yeah. second, lower second. So I was always an upper second student, yeah. but I sort of messed about in my final year and, and you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any trouble with economics, but... I was just focused on other things like paying pool and and drinking and and, and yeah. girls and whatever. Yeah. So um so anyway, so then I did a masters reluctantly because I was my mind was against studying, but I yeah. forced myself to go through it. Okay. And then the only job that I could get was in a banking software company because the the big banks, the investment banks were taking obviously the cream of the crop yeah. from Oxbridge and and other good universities. Sure, yeah. And so my dream of getting into banking turned out to be a lot more difficult when I faced the reality that I was competing with a lot of other highly qualified graduates. So I um, applied to this very small banking software company and I did sort of marketing. I had no experience in marketing either. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, the, the job was to write brochures and annual reports. Yeah. So I could write English, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. I had a banking background and they're yeah. a banking software company. Yeah. So that was my first job. Well, that's useful. I mean, they sort of repurposed you in a way. Mm. But did you feel like you were a bit far away from where you wanted to be or were you okay riding that wave for a bit? I was young. It was my first job. I suppose I was grateful. And initially I thought that it was um, that it was an okay job. You know, it was yeah. quite interesting. You get to learn about how to produce an annual report and stuff like that, yeah. you know, layout and, you know, how to lay out the text and how to produce something. And all those kind of things, which I suppose is was a precursor to my writing activities now, you know, the fact yeah. that I'm writing books. So, but that's a good question because as time went on, I probably became more cynical because I realized that they were probably keeping me in a job and I didn't really have any real true marketing skills. Yeah, right. And, you know, my banking knowledge was helpful, sure. Yeah, yeah. But... It wasn't the main stress of the job. Exactly, exactly. So so I wasn't really doing any banking. Yeah. And I wasn't really doing any real marketing. Okay. I was sort of somewhere in between. Yeah. So, you know, so I became more cynical as time went on. Yeah. But I realized that it's a small company. Yeah. And these things happen in a small company. And they needed you. Yeah. And And so they sent you to... Saraburi, is that That's correct? right. That's okay. right, yeah. So what happened there then? That sounds like a very strange turn of events in a way. Yeah, yeah. So the owner of the company was um, an ex-Cambridge graduate. He was a ex-Cambridge professor even. And he was a very intellectual guy. And he had a Thai wife and his wife owned the land in Saraburi. And Saraburi is sort of, sort of one and a half hours, maybe two hours north, northeast of Bangkok. Okay. Just past Ayutthaya, you keep going near okay. to the um, Khao Yai mountains okay and so he built his office there because his wife owned the land mm. and his model was to get graduates from Konkan University which is a, a reasonably well-known university so he used to get tech graduates from there to come down to Saraburi and basically build their life there 
Okay. And these these graduates would probably stay with him for 10 years or even longer. Really? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's a pretty far away place by the sound yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, for them, it was a comfortable life. It was their first job from university and they just became very comfortable. And it was yeah. like a way of life okay. for them. And so he invited me to join his company and move out there. But I mean, the, the meetings were in Bangkok. So um, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't out in the sticks like forever. You okay. know, I used to come in with the, with the office van to, to Bangkok, have my meeting, do my demo of the software, sure, yeah. speak a little bit to the fund managers and the bankers and understand what their requirements were, go back to the office and talk to the developers and the other people and mainly to the boss yeah. and explain to him what these guys had said to try and steer the development in the direction that the market wanted. And to be honest, again, after a year or two, I kind of realized that he was probably keeping me in a job. And, sure, yeah. <laughs> and maybe he wasn't even all that serious about breaking into that market. Maybe he realized that he was never going to break into that market because there were much bigger, more international players who were always going to have a much bigger reputation. Yeah. Who yeah. were going to outbid him. Maybe more all-pervasive software even. Exactly. You know, exactly. Larger so, scope and scale. That's yeah. it. So he, so he was neither able to compete with the big guys who had an international reputation, nor was he able to compete at the low end of the market against Thai competitors. Sure. He was trying to be both because he was, you know, he was trying to say, I'm an international software company. I have international credentials, kind of. Okay. But um, I've got no track record of selling this software. <laughs> you know, so yeah. he he was kind of floating in between. So he probably realized a lot earlier than than everybody else that he was he was probably not going to break into that market. Certainly not within the three years that I was there. But he kept me in that job, and it provided me an income. So I mean, I can't really blame him because I had, I had a great time while I was there. Okay. But career wise. I realized after three, three and a half years that I probably needed to move back to the UK if I was going okay. to work in banking. All right. So then for that phase, you did move back and you got a new career in London. I mean, it's in, but it's still, it's the same line of work. Like it's still banking, but you really did move to something else altogether. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of a gradual move. So, so I moved back to London, worked for another banking software company, which did uh, futures and options trading software. Then I moved to HSBC and I worked on foreign exchange um, okay. um, dealing well, software. Well, there you go. That's the big bank. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. I made that transition. So I worked for a company called FXAll, which is uh, now owned by Thomson Reuters. And they basically put me on the HSBC um, FX trading floor. And uh, my job was, again, to sort of get requirements right and then support the development. And that was my move into banking. And from there, I got into sort of more regulatory so uh, this, banking work. So this is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, regulation. We had briefly discussed earlier that you actually were pretty much at this point, it's now 2008, 2009, and the world banking system kind of fails because of large regulatory oversight. Yes. So now that you're literally given the job of regulation and you then see the whole world go down in front of you. Uh, were you still at HSBC doing regulation? Or? Yeah, well, actually, it was the it was the financial crisis which ended my contract at HSBC. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. yeah, but yeah, because um, because they didn't obviously they were um under pressure from having to cut costs and so on. Sure. Yeah. So uh, you know, a contractor is going to be the first guy out the door. Sure. You know, so yeah. uh, so I was out of a job for a year. You know, oh wow. Okay. Because you know it was very tough in the UK um, in those days because um, I was competing with guys who had been made redundant and they had. 10 more years experience than I did. These oh, are yeah. experienced guys yeah. going for jobs which are below their skill level okay. competing with me. You oh, know? wow, yeah. So, so, so I was um, in 2008, I was what, 32. 
Okay. With not that many years of uh, experience. Okay. And I was competing with guys who are 42, 52. Yeah. yeah you know? So yeah. Um, it was really, really tough. And so, you know, for a year I was out of a job. Then I got into RBS and, and then I started my regulatory career. Okay. In- so this kind of happens after the fact then. Yeah, so you, yeah. you'd end up at Royal Bank of Scotland. Yes. Is that right? And then it becomes a career of regulation. So now everyone's seen it fail. Bankers have been demonized by the media and the public at this point. How does newly demonized banker say, you know what, we're going to do some regulation now? Yeah, How how does that work? Well, I was probably blessed that I was still young and naive. And I didn't really see the impact of the regulations, nor did I see the the dislike of bankers in the initial, you know, in, in the first few years. That was a slow building thing. And I wasn't that much into politics either at that point. I was fairly young then. I mean, the early 30s is, you know, I, I probably didn't get into politics until a bit later. So I didn't really see what was going on around me. And and I was probably lower down the food chain. Sure, yeah. So I was just being told what to do. And I was probably quite grateful that, you know, and I, and, and I was quite into it initially. I have to admit, I have to hold my hands up that I thought, it was a very interesting new world okay. where, you know, you're supporting these big projects where banks are trying to, you know, do things in a different way because of new regulations. I found it quite interesting. And as I as I got into it more and more, I started to see it from a sort of a higher perspective, sort of stepping back a little bit. Okay. And then I started to see, you know, what was actually going on, what was the driver behind it. And then I started to become more and more and more cynical. Okay. About banking or financial systems or global financial systems? Was there anything specific or just Um, disillusioned? All of those. I think I mentioned to you in a previous conversation that, you know, I didn't realize until only recently, only until maybe even only a few months ago, when I started to listen to a lot of people who who really understand stuff and who like, for example, I'll mention his name, um, Thomas Sowell, who's not very well known. S O W E double L. He's a very, very famous American um, economist, but he's been discredited by a lot of people because okay. uh, he's perceived as right wing and, and so on. But okay. um, he mentioned the fact that the common perception is that the financial crisis was caused by greedy bankers and all this kind of thing. That That's to a certain extent true. Yeah. But it was initially caused by left leaning Democrat politicians who wanted to give loans to poor Americans sure. who clearly could not afford to pay those pay those mortgages back. Okay. So they were trying to instill social justice and give these people an access to a mortgage. And the market was correctly pricing those mortgages very highly because the market knew that these people were high risk. Sure, yeah. Um, but these Democrats made it a lot easier for these people to get those mortgages. Yeah. And inevitably what happened was they couldn't pay them back. And it set, okay. set off a chain reaction. Yeah. And the secondary impact of that was as soon as then <laughs> the the things started to go wrong, they started to bring out more regulation to try okay. and control what bankers could and couldn't deal in. Okay. But what that did was push people into a corner. And if you're an entrepreneurial banker, yeah. when you can't do a certain activity, you try and do something completely different. You try and do something completely different to yeah. try and make money because yeah. your job is to make money. Sure. So you take more and more and more risk to try and make money because you've been pushed into that corner. You've been backed into a corner. So in your opinion, regulation actually worked against this yes. uh, crisis? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Now, there is, a, there is a more fundamental question, which is, should they have even bailed out the banks? 
Now uh, yeah. that's th- that's something where I probably uh-huh. would agree that they yeah. should have because yeah. because if they didn't, yeah, the the whole system would have collapsed. I think right? another thing that people are asking is uh, why won't there any terms applied to the bailout? Yes. You know, in a way, they were just it was just a unconditional yes. bailout. I feel like a lot of people are quite okay with the actual bailout, but they had problems seeing the banks literally take this money and pay themselves off first. Oh, absolutely. And the executives getting those bonuses oh, and things like that. So that really riled people up. So I feel like a lot of people would have liked to have seen more riders attached to this bailout. Like, yes. you have to do this in there five was, years There was no accountability. Yeah. yeah. There was no accountability. Bankers did not have any personal stake. And so there was a moral hazard. You know, yeah. so th- they were basically allowed to take risks. Yeah. And then they were bailed out and they knew they were going to be bailed out because yeah. they were too big to fail. Too right? big to fail. That's right? the term and, used a lot right. at that time. Yeah. And so, you know, th- this is the classic sign of a corrupt industry when the leaders of an industry are effectively in bed with government. Sure. And they are, and in the end, to, to sort of take it one step further, yeah. you know, what was even worse than all of this was the regulation brought out by Obama to try and fix the problems. Quantitative easing. Yeah, well, I mean, all, all of that. And okay. Dodd-Frank and, and, and all yeah. of those things, right? Yeah. Were actually supported by the investment banks. Now, you would think that investment banks would be against the regulation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because it's limiting their activity. They're going to have to spend a hell of a lot of money to try and do things a different way, collect different data and so on, turn their business model upside down, right? sure. which is what I ended up doing, right? Yeah. But they were actually for it. Now, why is that? The yeah, reason, why is that? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason actually is, is actually pretty simple. The reason is because these investment banks have much more capital than the smaller guys. So they can afford to do this regulation. They can afford to, you know, um, churn out lots of reports, yeah. do things in a different way. And they can effectively then exclude all the smaller guys and raise barriers to entry. Oh, okay. So they so, were turning it into a, into a business model. Right. Rather than try and fight these guys, yeah. why don't we actually embrace it? Because JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, you know, Goldman Sachs, all these big guys. Yeah. We've got the funds. We've got the investment dollars to be able to do this stuff. We sure. may not like it. Yeah. But let's do it because yeah. then We're, the smaller guys can't compete with us. Okay. So uh, do you feel like there's a large chunk of banking that is gone now because of these regulations? Well, yeah. Now you're seeing a bit more competition, a bit more um opening up of the market, you're seeing, yeah. you know, Bitcoins and other things, and yeah, you're seeing, yeah. you know, digital banking, all of these kind of things, more innovation happening now. But yeah. the last five, six, seven years, maybe even, maybe even 10 years, most investment dollars have been spent on compliance. Compliance doesn't earn any profit. No, right? it doesn't. Yeah. Right? It's cost, right? right? So entire cottage industries of people, compliance professionals, people like me, project people, operations people, all these people, they're all costs you know, to the business. So yes, they have squeezed out innovation, competition, progress. And all this time, the banks have been able to ride that wave. But now when you're getting a slightly different political climate, you know, with Donald Trump coming in and so on, potentially repealing parts of Dodd-Frank, maybe not all of it. Okay. Now you're seeing more and more talk about competition and, you know, what the next big thing is and how we can free up markets, you know. So uh, do you reckon that the legislation passed during that time across the board, not just America, was a bit of overcorrection. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and it was politically motivated. It was yeah. absolutely. I mean, you, know, you talk to anybody, they will tell you that it was politically motivated, you know, between the EU and, you know, Obama's um, 
two terms, you know. But yeah. in Asia, it was actually resisted a lot more because I was there, you know, yeah. I was in Singapore, you know, yeah. working at the time yeah. in um, 2011 to 2015. Okay. Um, so what what exactly did you do in this regulatory time Sure. as, so, as a regulator? So two things which should be fairly simple to explain. I mean, th- there were a whole load of things in Dodd-Frank, which yeah. are very, very um, mundane. But um, two things that are easily explained. One is trade reporting. Now, you might think that bags do a lot of reporting, but uh, it turned out that actually they clearly weren't doing enough reporting in the view of the regulators. So yeah. regulators said you have to report all of your derivative trades, but not necessarily all of them, but under certain criteria. And you have to... Um, do it on a certain frequency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so then, you know, there were institutions created to receive these reports. And effectively, they're big data warehouses, massive, yeah. you know, and they yeah. collect all these reports. So I did that, you know. So effectively, it was collecting our business data, okay. then trying to work with the tech team to build these reports and then get them sent out, you know. Okay. Um, so, so that was one thing. And that created, as you can imagine, an entirely new business as usual department, which yeah. is responsible for churning out these reports, right? Yeah. Which, in my view, don't add a whole lot of benefit because the idea behind these reports, by the way, was that um, some guy who's receiving these reports will one day open, crack one open and read it. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, look at the entire industry, look at all these reports, put it all together, crank the wheel, and then work out is the banking industry you know, taking too much risk? Or not, and if it is, yeah. then we need to tell bankers to take less risk. You know, so that th- that was the idea. That and they're can... supposed to be doing this in real time, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, it's all a bit of overcorrection. And the other thing I did was um, central clearing, which probably you know people won't understand because it's a bit technical. But anyway, the the simple version is going from me dealing with you yeah. in a derivatives trade to more of a futures and options model where it's like an exchange where it's more transparent. Okay. Now, that, that seems like a very good idea. And futures and options obviously have existed for a long time. Yeah. They wanted to take the OTC over the counter market yeah. and make it more transparent and more like futures and options. Now, is a good idea to a certain extent and okay. is good to be transparent to a certain extent, but it involved a huge amount of cost, which is never counted in, yeah. in the business case. And secondly, you instantly forget the value of doing banking on a relationship basis. Sure. Now, if you think what, about what would you what do you mean by that exactly? Right. Like, so, I mean, let me give you a retail banking example that people yeah. can relate to. So, yeah, yeah. in the olden days, you know, yeah. you knew your bank manager. Yeah. You knew your bank manager. Yeah. You'd go in. You'd speak to your bank manager, and they might give you a bit of leeway in terms of you know giving you a loan or an overdraft because yeah, they knew yeah. you were a trustworthy you're guy. Good, you're good for it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you know there was a value to that. Right. Now. Most people don't know the bank manager. It's done by, you know, some kind of algorithm or whatever it is, right? And you can often be, you know, penalized or even demonized by a faceless institution. Because your credit score might not be like 0.1 right. higher or something. Right. Like you just missed a qualifying exactly. grade for a better loan. Exactly. And, by like- you know, many people who start businesses know that it's often quite difficult to have the cash flow in the initial stages. And if they can just get, a, you know, a loan yeah. and get a little bit further, yeah. you know, they can pay it back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an analogy of what the value of doing derivatives over the counter was. Yeah. That there was a value to that relationship. But yeah. what the regulators came and said was, well, we can't monitor your risk. Okay, that's that's half a half a good point. Yeah. But also, you know, we don't want bankers to rip off their customers, right? Right. So we think that you're ripping off your customers, you're taking too much of a spread, 
or whatever. Okay. So for your benefit, yeah. you know, we're going to make it more transparent. Yeah. But I'm not sure that there was a massive wave from all banking customers around the world to say, hey, you know, we're being ripped off by okay. banks or whatever. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't remember there being a referendum around the world, yeah. you know, saying yeah. we hate bankers at that time. I, I'm not talking about the political hate later on. I'm talking yeah. about banking yeah. customers yeah. before the regulation saying we don't like bankers ripping us off. We want you to be more transparent because right. many people were okay with that system because they valued their banker who would recommend derivative trades to them. Okay. And they valued that relationship because they would get research and other things and so on. Now with Dodd-Frank and Emir and Mifid and so on, they want to strip all that away in the name of fairness, transparency and so on. All these very worthy values. Yeah. And this is something you see a lot with the left wing, you know, sort of virtue signaling, doing things for the benefit of what they see as the right thing for the benefit of sure. society on their behalf, you know. Okay. So this was a part of the overcorrection that we were talking about earlier. But in a way, do you feel like some kind of regulation needed to happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't support like a like a Wild West, kind of like you can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Certainly. And I don't support, obviously, I mean, no sane person would support the actions of investment banking people affecting the everyday person who's got his, you know, 40,000 pounds or whatever in his retail banking account. And he's just trying to get a you know, a personal loan or whatever to start up his business, right? Yeah, yeah. That's clearly not right. Yeah. So, you know, you can debate these things about, you know, where is a cutoff line and where is the limited liability, Yeah, you know, and yeah. how much accountability do banking executives have right. to taking risk and then not paying the penalty for yeah. taking those risks. Yeah. But those are things that you need to think about very carefully and work with bankers and find a solution which protects the everyday person, but still allows the banking industry to be competitive and innovative and to take risk. Because after all, if you believe that bankers should not take risk, then you're basically killing the industry. Yeah, yeah, know? I see that. I see what you mean. But I think even during this time, did you visit Thailand often? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I went back to the UK in 2007, after I got married yeah. to um, a Thai colleague who was working in the same software company as me, um, you know, yeah. we, we both went back. We came back, you know, once, twice a year, every year until we've just moved back recently um, yeah. last year. So for 10 years, we were coming back at least once or twice a year, you know, because we're to see her family, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, so on. Did you have a idea of what banking was like over here? Because you had mentioned that in the West, there was a sharp overcorrection and the East, there was great resistance to this. Did you have an idea of what the climate was like over here banking wise? Well, the regulations didn't reach Thailand probably because Thailand wasn't really and isn't even now. Well, actually, that's not true. I mean, Thailand is moving into investment banking more now. And most of the regulation, most of the, you know, controversy and so on was to do with investment banking as opposed to, you know, retail. retail. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't really about retail. So it was about, you know, FX trading, derivatives trading, equities trading, you know, all those kind of things. Sure. So Thailand didn't really have that much of that. You know, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, they had some of these regulations and, and they were a lot more resistant. Thailand, not so much and probably a good thing um, yeah. in a way because they sort of dodged a bullet there. Right. You know, and now they're moving into Kasikon and so on, yeah. but are quite advanced. You know, they've got digital banking, mobile wallets. They do a lot of um, investment banking as well, you know, trading, that kind of thing. So within like a Kasikon bank, you can access most of these things now? I think so. I, I think they're moving in that direction. Uh, you know, I'm, from, from what I observe from the outside, Casicone is probably one of the, the most advanced 
Thai banks and they're trying to compete with some of the um, some of the regional players. You know, you've got UOB and you've got other Singaporean banks, DBS yeah. and so on. So they're they're trying to go to that level. And they've got a lot of people, from what I can see on LinkedIn and so on, who have studied abroad, are highly qualified people who've worked abroad, you know, very, very smart guys who have come back to Thailand and uh, heading up departments and really taking Thailand forward. That That's, can only be a good thing. That can be, yeah. And and uh, you reckon want Casacon or any one of these Thai banks has a reasonable chance of sort of establishing themselves? I think so, because um, Thailand generally is opening up its economy Despite what people may think, people may think that it's going the other way, but actually it's not. Yeah, people um, like to be pessimistic. Exactly, yeah. exactly. People like to be pessimistic, negative, but actually the truth of it is Thailand is opening up. It's encouraging entrepreneurship. There are more and more entrepreneurs coming here. They've even brought out, I think uh, somebody told me a 10-year visa you yeah. can get, yeah. you know, if you pass certain criteria yeah. um, and if you have uh, enough money. So Thailand is moving in that direction of seeing how the West does it and they're trying to trying to go in that direction. On the other hand, to be a bit more negative, maybe Thailand is not doing as well in terms of in terms of embracing English, you know, yeah. the, the English language, yeah. you know, uh, embracing Western concepts. But I can understand why they do that because they're sure. they're very protective about their culture. They yeah. they probably rightly think that more Westerners here would not necessarily be good. They may not fit in very well. Many Westerners yeah. don't necessarily make an effort yeah. to understand Thai culture. Right, yeah. So, you know, I can see why Thailand's kind of not doing it as fast as maybe, say, Philippines, which, which speaks English much better. Sure, you know, yeah. And even Vietnam and, and some of these other nations yeah. are really, you know, booming now. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Thailand's you hear maybe it all doing, the time, like, yeah. oh, uh, Vietnam, you, you're a young entrepreneur, you exactly. should go to Vietnam. Exactly. They, they have all kinds of skills. It's so much cheaper. Thailand's losing so much of its shine because yeah. they're uh, resisting some of these things. A popular refrain is, the education level here is not worthwhile. Yes. A lot of people don't see it useful to raise children here because they, there's no good schools or the yes. schools are exorbitantly expensive. But in your estimation, that's partly true, but not completely true. Partly true. And like I say, I, I don't really blame Thailand for taking that approach. I think actually, you know, every country always does things in a slightly different way which suits the culture, the population, the the mindset, the specific aspects of the economy that are appropriate for that for that particular country. So the UK may develop and does develop in a different way to many countries in Europe. Sure. You know? yeah. And even the UK is different to the US. Now, you know, I think the UK should actually go more to you know towards the, the US model, not necessarily in, in all ways. But every country has a different way of doing things. And every country, you know, generally is sensitive about culture and, you know, keeping national identity. You know, the, the, the EU is trying to sort of, you know, erode that. And you're seeing a backlash against that now in Austria, Hungary and, and various other countries. Yeah. You're seeing a bit of a backlash, you know, and you're seeing cultural identity, national identity coming back. That there's nothing wrong with, you know, having a national identity and doing things yeah. in, in our own way. And so, right. I, you know, I think Thailand's perfectly entitled to strictly control immigration, yeah. to do things in a different way. But, you know, as I say, 
many of their policies, which which you know uh, we don't have time to talk about now, yeah, yeah. Um, are actually promoting growth, their supply side economics. You know, basically promoting the people who don't have the opportunity, not necessarily giving people handouts, yeah. but giving them the opportunity to raise themselves up to get a better education. You okay. know, people may be cynical about it, but I think that uh, they're going in the right direction. I think people should be more positive, quite frankly, right, right. rather than just, you know, bitch and moan all the time. Correct. Yeah, I, I see that. But then I think there's a lot of people that also say, look, Thailand is firmly in scorn in the middle income trap at this point. So what does Thailand do to sort of get out of it? Are these initiatives enough? Or do you think that it's going to be a long, hard slog for them? I think it is going to be a long, hard slog. But um, I don't think, you know, like I say, I think that there's a danger, and, I, and I'm sure many Thai people think the same thing, that if they open up too much and say, maybe, you know, go the ASEAN way, yeah, then will they end up like Singapore or Hong Kong? And do they really want to be like that? Singapore or Hong Kong are very, very successful. Yeah. You know, and, and I love the, the model the political model, the economic model, the social model of Singapore and Hong Kong, but they suit Singapore and Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, so they may not suit Thailand, you know. So it's not for me or anybody else to try and bring another country's model and say, oh, you know, why don't you you open up more? Why don't you do this or that? Because then you'd be so much more wealthy or whatever. Sure. Because maybe Thailand thinks, well, actually, if we were to do that, which is creating even more of a ruling elite yeah. who get all the, the benefits. Yeah. And the the majority of the population who are not so well off would not necessarily get those benefits. So what may be right for another country is not necessarily right for Thailand. So I don't I, I don't think, you know, that people should jump to those conclusions too easily without thinking about things. I think you get a lot of Westerners who come over here who after maybe a few months they think they know everything about Thailand. And they want to bring their Western values and their Western politics or whatever yeah. to Thailand and, and start decrying and denigrating and, you know, condemning everything that Thailand does because they think they know better, you know, right, right. and usually they don't. You know? <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. It's funny that we should like look at it from this point of view, uh, from an economic point of view, because in so many ways you see these people come in and they want to learn the language or know more about the culture. And... It seems that you were one of these people at one point and you've actually gone ahead and taken that step. So you've left banking for now. Is it a hiatus, you think? or? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I, mean, I don't know whether it'll be for long term. If my business, which is sort of book publishing and distribution, um, yeah. goes further and develops into a long term business, maybe. But I don't necessarily rule out going back to banking in Hong Kong and Singapore. I may do that, perhaps slightly reluctantly. Yeah. But, um, you know, I've learned as I've gotten older, that uh, what you think today is not what you think in two years' time, maybe. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, so, you know, yeah, you can have all the theories and whatever, and you think, oh, you know, I'm on this new life now. Yeah. And then two years down the line, you think, oh, what was I thinking? You know? Yeah, yeah perhaps uh, you make that tone. But right now you've chosen this. Yeah. And uh, that means now you've written two books so far. They deal with uh, learning the Thai language. And uh, you also have a book publishing and distribution business yes. as well. Let's start with your own books. What possessed you to like drop everything in a seemingly promising career that yes. you had and come over here and decide, hey, maybe I'll write a Thai language learning book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, it, to be honest, no one would have thought, yeah, Steve's the guy. He's, yeah. he's the one who's going to teach us about <laughs> uh, the language Thai, the yes. Thai language and how to do it best. 
What, what changed there for you? There's probably two or three sort of strands of answer there. So one strand is I never really felt 100% comfortable in running projects in banks because running projects requires you to be quite logical, systematic, structured. And I guess I'm a little bit more creative and being tied into that format of, you know, having to do working groups and actions and minutes and steering committees and, you know. All that boring stuff. Yeah, you know, following up with developers and understanding technology and, you know, all that. I'm not a technologist and, and so on and so on. I was never comfortable with that. And my career went on and on. I realized that I was always going to struggle with that. I, I could always get to a point, but I was never going to be happy, you know, doing that sure. kind of stuff. So that's number one. Number two, I suppose, is that my wife had the idea that, you know, I should um, write a book because I've lived in Thailand and so on, and I can speak Thai. And she was absolutely right. I also talked to a friend who's a Thai teacher, and she also supported the idea that, you know, why don't I write a book? So that sort of idea came out of the blue. And I suppose number three was um, I was genuinely interested. I was genuinely interested in, you know, the Thai language. Not that I spent all my time learning Thai. I mean, I only spent two years learning Thai, actually. Sure, yeah. The rest of the time, I was just speaking Thai. Yeah. But I knew that I, I had some ideas, which, like my political views and so on, are a bit counterintuitive and a bit different to what the mainstream think. And so I thought I could teach Thai in a different way. And I saw some gaps in the market. Right. So what are these gaps exactly? Like we've discussed them before and your book is 100 words to learn in Thai, the first one. So the first one was actually the intermediate level, which was 100 Thai words that make you sound Thai. Okay. Yeah. And and so the, the, the gap there was, well, first of all, you don't see many intermediate to advanced level books out there in the market. Maybe a few, but but not that many. But more to the point, you don't see many books which have intermediate to advanced Thai, which is still intermediate to advanced in the context of everyday Thai. Okay. So what I'm saying there is, if I was to give this interview in Thai, that's yeah. what I would call intermediate to advanced Thai. Yeah. Right? yeah. So it's conversational Thai, yeah. but it's fairly difficult yeah. to give you, this interview in Thai. You can express more than your feelings. You can express it, concept. Exactly. Exactly. So to keep a running conversation going is actually quite difficult because basic Thai will teach you nouns, verbs, adjectives, but you need connecting words and other things, context yeah. words, yeah. Um, conjunctions, prepositions, all those kind of things to string a sentence together. Absolutely, you know? yeah. So, you know, even the word together, for example, you know, things like that, you know, are words which you need in order to be able to form a sentence. So these intermediate to advanced books were teaching Thai, I think, which are overly formal and also well above the level of a basic learner, you know, somebody who's got the basic tie down, yeah. you know, but, and then they have to read these intermediate to advanced books, which are teaching sort of book tie, right. not, yeah. not sort of tie that you'd speak, not necessarily slang, but just in everyday tie that you need, you know, to speak to the taxi driver, the coffee shop owner, you know, your mate or whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, conversational tie, you know. So I thought that there was a definite gap there. And also I noticed um, that a lot of books don't really give the context. They don't really explain how words should be used in what context. Yeah. They don't give an well, that's insight. That's crucial in, it, in yeah. any language, you know, like uh, you might have a word that you want to use or you think it's appropriate 
but it falls flat for some reason and you can't quite decipher why exactly and they don't have a good answer to tell you hey this was wrong because xyz that's reason that's it that's it exactly so so those are the kind of things that i thought i could bring that uh, explain words explain the context give the insight but don't go off into book tie but also don't put out a whole lot of slang because i also spend a lot of time just um talking about almost going into a rant about this thing about natural tie you know sounding tie what is natural tie yeah you know so if you got a 60 year old expat who's come here to retire which, which you know and there are many expat retirees here and if you think that natural tie is for that 60 year old man let's say to speak like a 20 year old thai girl who's speaking to her mates in a coffee shop yeah that's not natural for a 60 year old man coming from america right yeah and right? people are always going to look at you funny right yeah. they're not so, going to tell you what the problem is right exactly right so you need to speak maybe a slightly more um age appropriate context appropriate thai which suits who you are not try and copy the thai you know so many thai teachers would be young thai females you know sure, um, yeah. as they often tend to be And so I had quite a lot of conversations with one or two of these Thai teachers who were convinced that the Thai that they spoke was natural Thai. Yeah. And I was saying to them, well, that's natural for you, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean it's natural for me and and my language has changed over the 20 years, you know. The way that I spoke English, yeah, 20 years ago is not the English I speak now. No. Because I I've got a lot more knowledge, you know, wisdom, experience of life. Yeah. And I I don't use as much slang or as much idioms or whatever that I did before. maybe in 20 years time my language will change again yeah. so it's not appropriate for me to speak like you because right. i'm not you you know right so but you feel like the thai population in general would come to appreciate this like this distinction or do you think that it's still splitting hairs in a way i think that for them it's splitting hairs but yeah. you know this is why i think that um many of the best thai teachers are expats or or uh, i should say you know foreigners who speak perfect thai because not only can they speak thai but they can understand things from the westerner's perspective they okay. can explain things to the thai learner because they've been through it themselves You're right you know so whereas some thai teachers are very very good because they can speak english perfectly they've maybe lived in the uk or us or whatever australia yeah but some thai teachers end up almost being like a representative of uh, thailand Yeah. And they want to they want to almost go more formal, more of like a cultural ambassador. Yeah. And they see the things that I'm talking about maybe as splitting hairs like you said. Yeah, yeah. But th- what they don't realize is that they're thinking about it from their perspective, not from the the westerner or the indian person or whoever, yeah, yeah. you know, who's trying to learn Thai because they're yeah. coming from a different background. Yeah. Right? And it's not appropriate for that person to use the same pronouns or even the same slang or the same idioms. because it doesn't sound natural for them when it comes out of the mouth of somebody who's an expat it sounds kind of weird it's yeah. like it's like for example a thai person going to the uk yeah. and start speaking like a cockney or yeah. or like swearing all the time yeah, or yeah. whatever you know yeah. it sounds more harsh and more abrupt yeah. coming from a thai person because you don't expect that person to be speaking like that right. and they might think that they're being natural but but actually they might get more judged about how they're speaking more judged more harshly okay because of the fact that they're trying to fit in so much you know right 
they're trying to say all the language that they've heard in the pub or whatever and they're thinking yeah. that oh they're, they're being really that's, natural that's how people talk people yeah, in the pub yeah, is exactly. how people but, talking speak english that's yeah. right but, but but it's not necessarily natural for them you know it's natural for a guy who's who's grown up in the uk to talk like that yeah but not necessarily somebody who's just been you know in the uk for a couple of years or right, whatever right sure. you know, so so in your book you have the words you might have the context for the words but this this sort of spirit that you've been discussing with me is that sort of represented in the book as well do you say like the point of this book is not just for you to take your thai and make it better but for you to like discover your own thai do people have the opportunity to find their context in the book yes and i give a lot of insights so i, I give an explanation as to you know when you should use it when, when it's not appropriate to use that word so give and, us an example okay so what about the word go go means well in in certain situations ga also means nothing in certain situations in certain situations in in fact in many situations it's used as a substitute for a pause basically right. to add cadence to a to sure. a sentence sure it's like so, people saying um um yeah, okay yeah. okay exactly. or like 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 exactly. like, like. Yeah. that's it that's it exactly so that's the word that you can use to sound more natural in thai and that word is appropriate for a for a westerner to use and he will sound more Thai. So I have words which um I label as tiness words in inverted commas. And these tiness words are words that a Thai person wouldn't necessarily expect you to know and they'd be quite impressed if you come out with a word. Like for example another one is um rurui. You know rurui means um sort of I'm I'm going with the flow. I'm 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 taking it as it goes. Sure. So most um learners would use the word like like somebody might say sabaidi mai and you say sabaidi or whatever right so i'm fine you know I'm, yeah. are you okay yeah yeah i'm fine or whatever right but an alternative is to say rurue you know which is quite difficult to pronounce but rurue sort of means yeah i'm doing okay i'm sort of going with the flow you know um kind of thing and so rurue word can be used in in many different contexts and if you can say that word and pronounce it and use it correctly you probably impress a Thai person quite a lot that you know how does he know that word oh okay so in a way it's a uh, unlocking keys these keys to are rather these keys you present to unlock deeper relationships perhaps yes yes it could lead to i don't want to make it an us and them thing but what i mean is it could lead to general thai person saying hey this guy might be worth chatting with yes. other than having a generic low bar conversation absolutely absolutely 100% 100% because most conversations between thai and foreigners are fairly basic and that's because thai people know that generally you won't know more than this yeah exactly you won't know more than this their language is quite difficult to pronounce and quite difficult to learn and so even making you know getting to basic level is quite difficult for most people so if you can go beyond that and use some words which they don't ex- you know expect like like um lao ga or you know lao ta ming yi or whatever or you know um bai lu or or whatever you know all these expressions right It's it's quite unusual for a for a foreigner to be able to say those kind of words and use it correctly yeah. in the right context and so it differentiates that person from everybody else right. and there is oh actually this guy you know he has been paying attention he has been and he knows some stuff which I would have never thought he'd have picked up from everyday conversation because when you don't understand the language these words are just noise they just go yeah, in one ear they yeah. go past yeah. through, through yeah. you yeah you get what you mean but we were also discussing the actual layout of the book and stuff like that and i i've uh, lived in foreign countries learned languages myself but what i've always found in a lot of these language learning books is it they have an audio component like a cd or a youtube channel that pairs with it or something like that 
and we discussed this and you said you didn't really have one. You didn't have like an audio component. And Thai is a very tonal language. Yeah. That's in fact a very big part of it. How do you feel like this will still be effective without that audio component? Yeah, so um, there's sort of two answers to that. So one is I have to hold my hand up and say, I've been a little bit lazy to not do that. And also, I guess that uh, I thought that it would make the book more expensive as well and there'd be more production cost. And so maybe I thought that uh, I didn't want to invest as much in that book. But I mean, I I do take that point that it is a tonal language and you do need help with uh, pronunciation. However, on the other hand, I would say two things. So one is that there's a lot more available online. So you can get all the pronunciation guides online um, that you need. So that's one thing. And also on YouTube and whatever. But also, there's also a common fallacy, which I'm trying to discredit as much as I can, that you cannot represent Thai sounds in the chapter which deals with transliteration and pronunciation, which which is at the start of every book. You know, most Thai learners who have learned to a reasonable level, not most, but quite a few, end up becoming language snobs. And they end up telling everybody else, oh, unless you do a course and you learn to read and write and you learn, you know, you, you do your CDs and whatever and so on, you're wasting your time completely, forget all about it, yeah. you know, kind of thing, don't even bother, you know, and so on. You know, and part of their argument is, oh, you can't possibly represent Thai sounds using English characters and so on. Yeah. It's rubbish. That's rubbish. You know, you can, you yeah. can, yeah. and it has been done. And many books are out there without a CD. Yeah. And there are books that are selling in the thousands and they're from well-known authors and they do sell. So that is complete and utter rubbish. But what is true to say is that readers often skim read or even skip that chapter so they okay. haven't learned the system well right yeah because they can't be bothered because it's boring to yeah. learn yeah. you know about the fact that let me give you a, a very very simple example okay some people say pad thai pad yeah. thai right yeah they haven't spent enough time listening because if they did they'd understand that it's pad thai right pad, yeah. yeah right the a is like the a in thai yeah. you know or like obama or yeah. whatever it's an r not an yeah. a yeah. you know so it's not like bad you know bad pad it's yeah. not like pad thai is pad thai right so those are the kind of things in a book, you know, you would probably say the A is an A sound. Yeah. It's not an A sound, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but many but foreigners... These are just, crucial differences. Crucial differences, right? Crucial, but yeah. But readers often don't bother to read that because they it's just boring or what, and they want to get to the exciting stuff sure, you know, yeah. where they're learning. And, and so these snobs who totally dismiss and condemn, you know, learners for, you know, not learning the the proper way and so on and, and all this kind of stuff. And if you if you don't learn to read, you can't possibly pronounce Thai properly and all these sure. kind of things that they, sure. they, they come yeah. out with. They're completely wrong because they're, they're, they're focusing on the wrong thing. The system is not wrong. Yeah. You know, you can describe Thai sounds using English characters. It is difficult. Yeah. And there are some, there are some very minute differences which and subtleties which are very, very difficult to, to explain. Yeah. But it can be done. And if the reader spends enough time, as I did, I spent hour after hour after hour on that chapter, over and over again, learning it, learning the tones and everything. And then you can pronounce Thai using transliterated Thai, you know. So, yeah, you know. Okay. That's a very interesting thought because, uh, again, like you said, a lot of people would find that counterintuitive in a way. But it's pretty uh, impressive the way you've sort of invested into 
learning a language, but then wanting to spread that. Where does that come from? As in, was that something that you've you've always liked languages or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I uh, <laughs> I have tried to learn several languages and they've mostly been um, inspired by girls that I've met from <laughs> from foreign countries. Yeah, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah. uh, so um, I tried to learn um, Korean for quite a while. Okay. Because I went to Korea and wow, the girls are so pretty there. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to sound too lecherous, but, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but um, it inspired you to try and learn yeah, some Korean. But, but yeah. my God, I mean, you know, I mean, people say that, you know, Koreans have a lot of, do a lot of plastic surgery or whatever. Yeah. I don't know, you know, yeah. um, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but, it, yeah. but but if they do, they're doing something right. Yeah. You know, because um, <laughs> the girls are, you know, super fashionable. Yeah. They're dressed beautifully, you know, yeah. um, they're classy and they've got, you know, they're, they're absolutely beautiful. And um, yeah. yeah so I got inspired to learn Korean and I, and my main driver was so I could, you know, flirt with Korean girls, basically, yeah, yeah. you know, and I got to a, a reasonable level, almost basic level, but I could never quite form sentences on an ongoing basis, probably yeah. because I didn't have a book like mine, okay, you know, yeah. which sort of filled in the gaps. So, so I knew a lot of nouns, verbs and adjectives, yeah. but I could never go from speaking in a staccato kind of way using two or three words yeah. to going to, to form sentences. But anyway, I tried to learn Chinese for a while, you know, Mandarin, and I got an ex-girlfriend to write a lot of Chinese words for me, you yeah. know, and so on. Yeah. Um, I tried to even learn um, Cantonese and I tried to learn Portuguese for a while because I thought I was going to work with a Brazilian guy. So mainly girls and work, you know, yeah. those are yeah. the two reasons why. I think a lot of people subscribe to that way of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but um, aside from the books, and there's two of them, so there's this one and there's another one, which is, I think that book is a more basic type. That's right. Like, sort of, but they're not ex Beginners, exclusive yeah. companions. Not necessarily, yeah. So yeah. the second one is a beginner book and yeah. it's for absolute beginners. And again, I saw a gap in the market, well, what I believe to be a gap, which is that... Um, Phrase books are good and they serve a purpose. And of course, you know, if you go to a new country, you need something, you need a companion. But Thai is quite difficult to speak out of a phrase book because it's a tonal language. Yeah. You know, you, the chances are you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. You know? yeah. And you don't get much context in phrase books. So you just blurt out a phrase and you expect that the guy's going to understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the guy responds. And you're like, oh. Now what do I do with yeah, this? Now what do yeah. I do? Yeah. yeah. Kind of yeah. <laughs> so, um, so phrase books do have a purpose. I, I don't say that they don't. And I would probably use a phrase book if I was coming to Thailand, but you do need something else, I believe. And also, on the other hand, you have a lot of beginner course books, sure. which are much more in-depth and which are very, very, very good. But many people don't want to learn that much. you know. Right. So again, I don't want to condemn people for not wanting to learn Thai. This is a, very much an elitist kind of a, you know, approach that, oh, you know, you must learn Thai properly. Otherwise, you're just not worth it. So, you know, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So. I don't want to exclude those people because, uh, you know, as I say in, in an interview I'm doing now, if that approach were taken, say in the UK with the cooking revolution, yeah. where there's cookery programs on all the time for the last 10 years, yeah, you know, yeah. chefs have been coming on TV, Jamie Oliver and whoever, encouraging yeah. people to cook, yeah. Gordon yeah. Ramsay, et cetera, right? Yeah. Imagine if you took that approach with cooking and you said, oh, well, if you're not going to learn to cook properly, don't bother. Yeah. You know? Forget yeah. it. You know, yeah. because you don't yeah. know your spices and you don't know your ingredients or whatever. Yeah. So just forget it, you know. But I just want to make a frittata. Right. Like, what's so, up know, with that? Yeah. Exactly. Why don't yeah. you encourage people to take the first step and they can learn along the way? So I saw a gap in the market between a phrase book and a course book, which gives more context than a phrase book, explains things more, gives more insight, but it doesn't give you, for example, colors or time of the day. Because an absolute beginner is probably not going to get into a conversation where yeah. he's going to want to 
say the time of day in Thai, which as it happens is actually quite tricky. Yeah, you, you know, yeah I've in, heard about this. Yeah, yeah. in yeah. Thai it's not easy because they break it up into six-hour chunks, and it's different depending on which six hours you're talking about and so on. So sure. without going too much detail, yeah, it's actually quite difficult. So a beginner is unlikely to be getting into a conversation where he would need to say that. But in a beginner course, you know, you would have that as a section. And yeah. if you're interested in that, great, if yeah. you are. But if you're an absolute beginner, you probably don't need that. So I've left those things out and yeah. I've focused on giving them the context behind the key words that they need, like to go, to eat, to yeah. say hello, you yeah. Know, yeah. to say thank you, to say that something is nice, to say yeah. that a girl is pretty, you know, whatever. The, the yeah. basic things that are next. I've always wanted to know if someone says sawadi khap or sawadi ka to you, what do you say back like you, you say know, the same thing you you do yeah oh, okay yeah. Yeah. yeah so if so yeah. you, uh, you you as a guy would say sawadi cup yeah yeah and you have to say cup and cup yeah. is like a is a high tone yeah, yeah. so say sawadi cup and yeah that's it you know yeah um, because i feel like so sheepish they like, they like why and they like bow down or like you know yeah they, they give a very like respectful sure. why and then you're like hi <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, ah yeah. well actually you've raised another very very good point um, yeah. which i talk about in the book which is many foreigners like yourself probably feel the need to why people yeah first now this is something that people do and it's wrong <laughs> um, yeah you you really shouldn't be going around thailand whying first yeah the why is done from somebody who is either younger basically somebody who's inferior in some way yeah. so either because they're younger and so a child would always why to an older person or somebody who's socially inferior for example and i know some people find that phrase kind of harsh like social yeah, inferior yeah, but yeah. say from staff to a boss yeah you know or let's say from um if you're in a shop the shop right keeper should why you instead right, of you right. going back exactly. so if you see, even if you say cup kun cup you have let them why first let them why first and then you can then receive the why by by doing something you know which is sort of at your vaguely at your chest level yeah just to acknowledge it yeah. or if you don't want to do that you can just sort of do a slight bow of your head okay and that's enough you know, or if All you right. just want to say hi, yeah. that's also good. Yeah. But if you if you do why first, it's not like the crime of the century. Yeah. And people and Thai people obviously realize. Yeah, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. you don't know what you're doing. But you're trying, so that's nice. You're trying, you mean well, and you want to show your gratitude and so on. You love being in Thailand. They get that, right? Yeah, yeah. But you would never see an older person whying a younger person generally. Yeah. Unless that younger person was in some very, very senior position in some way. Okay, you know. yeah. Or they had done something great. Yeah. For that, that older person. Exactly. Or like, let's say sometimes an older taxi driver might why somebody who is the boss of a company who is younger. Right. You know, yeah. Possibly. You yeah. Know, yeah. That kind of thing. But generally, it'll be from a younger or supposedly inferior person to a supposedly superior person. Gotcha. Okay. That's, uh, that's something for me to take home, I guess. But here's another thing uh, we have actually to talk about is you don't not only write your own books, you not only publish them yourself but you actually have begun to publish other people's books. So other expats, foreigners who want to write books here in Thailand, you take their books and put them out there. Correct. So how did you come about doing that now? Yeah, so um, when I wrote my first book, I went to Asia Books and said, hey, you know, I've written a book. Do you want to stock it? And they said, well, mm, yeah, 
Maybe, but um, we don't really set up accounts with individual authors. Sorry, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, and that was perfectly reasonable, to be honest with yeah, you. I mean, yeah. I, I was wonderfully naive, and I, and I yeah. thought that I could just no, anyone can stroll in and put yeah. their book on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, and then they, they they quickly disabused me of that of that notion. Yeah, and they said, yeah, you know, sorry, we we don't just set up accounts with everybody because otherwise we'd have to deal with uh, you know fifteen hundred you know or God knows how many thousand authors. Yeah, or and and we don't know whether you're good or not. So anyway. Over a period of time, because I could speak Thai and my wife could speak Thai and so on, I managed to convince them to take my book on. And then sort of one thing led to another. And again, it's probably because I can speak Thai and I showed an interest. They said, oh, you know, well, um, you know, we've got these other authors, you know, we're not going to deal with them. Yeah. Uh, do you want to, you know, yeah. if you want to go ahead, it's your risk, not ours. Yeah. But if you could strike a deal with them, fair play. Yeah. Kind of We'd be happy to stock the book, but 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 you know we're not going to set up an account with them. Yeah. So, but you have to do all the warehousing, the the stock in the book, the sales reports, the you know whatever you know all of the things that distributors do. You have to do all of that stuff, and the risk is yours, not ours. So, if you're prepared to do all that running around, then sure, you know these authors um, can deal with you. So I thought, okay, fine, let me try that. So I've been trying to expand that business more and more. Since I moved to Thailand, right. I found these authors, and so know. these people write into an Asia books, and they're immediately routed to you. Are you sort of like a content filter for Asia books, <laughs> like sort of testing if these people are serious <laughs> or good enough to be in their yeah in I their mean, shop? Well, the thing is, that's not necessarily what I what I am supposed to be doing, because a, a traditional wholesaler or distributor doesn't really bother with doing that. Yeah, because they get the finished product. Yeah, they get the finished product. They really offer warehousing and tracking yeah. of sales, and that's pretty much it. And they take a cut, and they have a very powerful position because they're so well known in the market. Yeah. If you don't go with them, you, you, you're pretty much not going to sell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily my intention, but what I've realised is that I do need to do a little bit of that because a lot of these authors have released a book which maybe they haven't printed it yet. For example, they need some feedback on whether it's going to sell. And that's not really my decision as such, yeah. but I might have an opinion. You know, I might be able to steer them in the right direction, make it a little bit more professional. I can also give them advice about how to get it printed and you know, you know, all these kind of things. So I've ended up almost being sort of a handholder yeah. to yeah. self-publishing authors to a certain extent. You know, um, some of them are very savvy and they know what they're doing, but some of them really don't. And so I've, I've kind of gone from distributor to sort of publisher to sort of handholder and sort of being a book agent right, and yeah. sort of everything in between. Yeah, kind yeah. Of thing, depending you seem on to be filling a lot of roles here. Whatever needs to be done to get that book, you know, into the market in a professional state, you know. Okay. As I say, you know, some books are perfectly well made and they've won awards and something. And so that is um, fairly easy to distribute. Yeah. And others are uh, a lot more difficult. Sure, know? yeah. So do you have a now a formal business? Do you have like a yeah, so, I mean, umbrella um, or like a you know, company that you run now? Or is it still just people send you personally the book? It's sort of um, not quite a business in the sense of I've set up a set up a limited company or anything like that. Yeah. But I have got um, a brand and an imprint, which is called Arun Press. Arun uh, Press, okay. And I publish my own books under that imprint. I'm trying to get um, set up officially as a, as a publisher in my own right in the UK under that imprint under that publishing house. Yeah. And then I obviously have my own ISBNs, which I can use. But as of now, yes, people are sending me their books to me personally, and I'm supplying them to Asia Books personally. And the reason for that is because I can't afford 
really to have the administration overheads yeah. of a full-blown company. But I will get into that once I take that next leap and become even bigger and, you know, I, I, maybe I need to set up a proper warehouse and things like that. And, right, right. You know, and maybe even employ staff, who knows, you know. Yeah. So I haven't got to that stage yet. So I'm operating as sort of a sort of an individual with with a publishing imprint and trying to establish a publishing house, if you like. You know? Okay, sounds pretty good. So can you quickly tell us your two books and how to get them? Yeah, so they're available on Amazon. You know, so the beginner one is um, 100 Thai Words to Start Speaking Thai. It's a very small A6 size book, so almost like a pocketbook. Well, basically, it is a pocketbook, and it's basically beginner level tie. It's available um, on Amazon as well as Asia Books and Kinukunya. And the intermediate one is an A5 size, and again, available on Amazon and Asia Books and Kinukunya. And it's sort of intermediate to advanced conversational tie, which is probably going to be quite a challenge for people who are at a basic level. But I think that if they give it a go, They'll be hugely rewarded. But what I say, by the way, is most people should, if they're serious about learning Thai, they should start off with my beginner book. Then they should buy the book that I, for which I get no no kickback or anything. I don't get any anything. But is a book called Essential Thai, Essential Thai by um, James Higby, which I consider to be the very best basic course book in Thai. Okay. And once they've done that, they'll they'll find they can speak conversational Thai pretty well and and then if they move on to my intermediate book yeah if they do things in that order if they've got through those three books and they've paid attention and they've read them you know page to page you know all the way through yeah i can guarantee people that they'll be you know speaking very very good time well that's great so you you heard it here first Uh, (laughs) i'm actually gonna heed this advice learn some time myself it's not easy it's not easy right it's gonna Um, take a while yeah yeah yeah. but if you've got the mindset yeah 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 Yeah. page by page yeah so that's great and arun press how do people get in touch with you and uh, if they have a nice book that they'd like published yeah so um good question so um steven.sard so steven with a ph dot sard s-a-a-d at um, arunpress.com and yeah, they can get in touch, tell me about their book idea. I don't tend to sort of um, give opinions on manuscripts because that could be a bit tricky. You know, um, I don't want to give people false hope. Yeah. I, I'm not really a literary agent. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, and, and I certainly don't operate under the traditional model of publishing whereby I pay for an author to yeah. get his work published. Yeah. So I'm more self-publishing authors, you know. Yeah. Because help them along, get yeah. them into Asia books, stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. So authors would have to print their own books and so on. But obviously the benefit for them would be that they they would go from, you know, selling personally or online or whatever to getting it stocked in shops. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of authors are a bit nervous about that because they're used to the old model where the publisher does everything, you know, they yeah, they, yeah. they do the distribution, they do the publishing, they do the the book design, the formatting, the cover, the everything. And so from an author's perspective, wow, this is, uh, I don't have to do anything. I just have to write the manuscript, send it off. And I don't have to worry about the cost. But what they don't realize is that they see hardly any of the revenue coming back. Yeah, yeah. Because no publisher does anything out of the kindness of their heart. No, no, why would they? <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So, so they're getting 80, 90% of the revenues that come back because they've paid for all the costs yeah. up front yeah. of getting that book published in the first place. Right. So the authors hardly ever break even. So they get a false sense of how convenient it is, and they focus on that rather than the fact that they're actually making hardly any money. Right. You know? Yeah. So when they are asked to self-publish and then go through somebody like me, they often say, "Oh, well, why do I need you? 
Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah. You know, and I, and so I always tell them, well, first of all, you make more money by self-publishing. Admittedly, you don't have the contacts of, yeah. of a publisher, but yeah. that's where that's I come where in. That's where you come in. Yeah, that's where I come in. I can help you to get in. And yes, you do have to pay me, yeah. but you probably still make more money. Yeah. But you won't make money if you, if your book doesn't sell. But that's yeah. that's not down to me. That's yeah. down to your book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you don't believe in your book, then well, you know, you you, you probably yeah. better think about that before yeah. you approach anybody. Exactly. You know, yeah. So. so wonderful. So you can reach Stephen at stephen.sad at arunpress.com if you have a book ready to uh, hit the market, and he will certainly try and help you out with where it needs to be. And yeah, Stephen, where else can people reach you? Maybe on Twitter or something like that. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm actually, I won't even say that I'm ashamed to, but um, um, I'm actually quite old school. And okay. as you can tell from some of my political views and so on, yeah. I'm fairly traditional and I kind of, you know, there are many things where I wish the world was, <laughs> you know, the way it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. You know, I, I wish yeah. that people read more physical books as opposed to, you know, things on devices and so on. But anyway, yeah. so I don't have... A Facebook account, I don't have Twitter and okay. so on. So I know people think that's absolutely bizarre, but I do have LinkedIn. Okay. So, so, so I'm a little bit of a sellout. Yeah. So, 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 so yeah. you know, I do have LinkedIn. That's and great. So uh, people can reach me via LinkedIn as well. They can just look me up, Stephen Saad, you know, with a PH, Stephen Saad, and um, they can see my background or whatever and connect to me, you know. Wonderful. Okay. So uh, that, thank you, Stephen, for this, uh, giving us some of your time and getting into the intricacies of banking and regulation and learning Thai. It's been a really nice uh, conversation with you today. Thank I, you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And um, I hope to speak to you and your listeners um, again sometime in the future. Maybe. Yeah, let's see what we can do about that. Fantastic. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com. And the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time. 